Today I'll be reading from Colossians 1, 21 through 2, 5 from the Common English Bible. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. But you need to remain well-established and rooted in your faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. This message has been preached throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a servant of this good news. Now I am happy to be suffering for you. I am completing what is missing from Christ's sufferings with my own body. I'm doing this for the sake of his body, which is the church. I became a servant of the church by God's commission, which was given to me for you in order to complete God's word. I'm completing it with a secret plan that has been hidden for ages and generations, but which has been revealed to his holy people. God wanted to make the glorious riches of this secret plan known among the Gentiles, which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. This is what we preach as we warn and teach every person with all wisdom so that we might present each one mature Christian, um, sorry, present each one mature in Christ. I work hard and struggle for this goal with his energy, which works in me powerfully. I want you to know how much I struggle for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all those who haven't known me personally. My goal is that their hearts would be encouraged and united together in love so that they might have all the riches of assurance that comes with understanding, so that they might have the knowledge of the secret plan of God, namely Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I'm telling you this so that no one deceives you with convincing arguments, because even though I am absent physically, I'm with you in spirit. I'm happy to see the discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. Will you please join me in prayer as we approach God's word this morning? God, we gather in this space as we do every week in different states, some of us full, some of us empty. But we thank you for the words we just sang together, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Um, But at the end of the day, what what matters most is not what we can do, um, but what you are in us to do and make possible. Where we need refilling, refill us with the presence of your Spirit. Where we need fresh vision, renew our vision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of exploring the book of Colossians, which is a letter written by Paul, this early Christian leader, um, to a church of brand new Christians in what is now uh, modern day Turkey. And the part of the letter we're looking at this morning is the most personal part of the letter. Um, Paul often talks about big kind of theological concepts, but every once in a while in his letters, he starts to get into kind of personally, like, what is faith meaning and looking like for him right now? And this is what he does in this section of Colossians. Um, Let me just highlight a couple things. In verse 24, um, Paul says, now I'm happy to be suffering for you which obviously is a pretty clear signal, like something is not going well for Paul at this moment in time. 
Um, Jump down to verse 29. Paul says, I work hard and I struggle for this goal with his energy, which works in me powerfully. And then in the next verse, he repeats this word struggle. I want you to know how much I struggle for you. So in terms of what's going on in Paul's life, we've got, we know he's suffering, we know he's struggling, we know he's working really hard. Now, what is the detail of what's going on? Um, Well, if you know anything about the story of Paul, um, Paul's conversion to Christianity is probably the most famous conversion in Christian history. And essentially, as a young man, uh, Paul hated Christians and was kind of dedicating all of his considerable strength and intellect to destroying Christianity, when one day as he's plowing down the road on this mission of destruction, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And that, that encounter is just so real and so profound and so transformative that Paul ends up kind of turning on a dime and spending the rest of his life just giving every ounce of what he's got to telling other people that Jesus is alive and why that matters. And in some of his other letters, Paul gives more detailed descriptions of like, what does this actually look like and what does it cost him? And according to Paul, he's been beaten um, by mobs. He's been whipped five times by governing officials. He's lost friendships. He's gone hungry. He's been out in the cold with no clothes. He's been shipwrecked three times. He's been adrift at sea. He was stoned and left for dead. And sometimes you you read Paul giving these descriptions, and I I don't know about anybody else, but I just think, like, what does it take for a person to, like, sustain themselves through this kind of struggle? Like, I get thrown off by very minor things, and this is, like, decades of, of intense struggle and suffering. What keeps him going? Well, and the answer is that, that Paul knows something. Like, he, he has his hands around something that is just so big and so important that he can't let it go, and no cost seems too high. Um, earlier this week, I was listening to an interview with a Hungarian immigrant who was one of the scientists who's behind the technology um, that developed into the mRNA vaccine that is making such a contribution globally. And this woman was telling her story of just like great struggle for many years that, you know, she had, she had no power, no connections. She didn't have a tenured job. She couldn't get anyone to fund her research. Um, you know, she, she had nothing going for her, but just like knew she had her finger on this really important idea that would make a huge difference if, if somebody would buy into it. Um, so she did the only thing she could. She just started talking to everybody, like people at conferences, on planes, at the water cooler. And I believe that the person who ended up kind of giving her a chance and becoming a partner in this work, she said she met him standing at the copy machine when she started talking to him at the copy machine about what her research was. It, it strikes me this is so much like what's going on with Paul. Like this, this woman knows, she knows something that can make this huge difference for maybe billions of people. And like what can you do but just talk about it and talk about it no matter how long it takes or how much it costs you. Like when Paul sees the resurrected Jesus, he knows what he knows what he knows, right? And like nothing becomes too big of a cost to just keep telling people um, because he thinks it would change everything if people would latch on to it. Now, what is the actual content of, of this thing Paul knows that he thinks is going to change everything? Well, we kind of brushed on this a couple weeks ago, but I want to touch it again because Paul repeats it in this passage. Um, what does he think he knows? What, what is this good news that he's carrying? 
Um, sometimes when we read Paul's letters, I think we, we sort of treat them like Paul's letters are mostly a list of instructions or things to do. But the, the vast majority of Paul's work is just telling people, something amazing has happened, and let me describe for you again and again and again why it matters. So I, I would sum it up in just maybe three quick words or phrases. Um, number one would be a fresh start. Um, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies with him in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. In other words, once many people in the world were desperate for God's approval and never sure exactly what it would take to make God happy, like, we were all working, just trying so hard to be worthy of God's attention or affection, or at least to not make God mad. But the first thing that Paul knows is, hey, God is not waiting for us to fix ourselves anymore. God is not waiting for us to prove that we're worthy. Jesus has done what it takes to make things right with God on our behalf, and we're good. Like, Jesus has taken care of this. Here now, we and God, we have been made right. We are, we are in good standing before God. And Jesus has done that. We have a fresh beginning. That's the first thing Paul knows. Um, second thing I would describe as friendship. Verse 27. God wanted to make the glorious riches of the secret plan known among the Gentiles, which is Christ living in you. For most of human history, people have been searching for God in, in religious traditions and in temples and religious rituals and getting professionals to mediate it for them. But now we know none of that is necessary. God wants to be not just friends, but in deep communion with us, constantly available to us. Um, verse 29, Paul says this is his experience. I work hard and I struggle for this goal with his, with Christ's energy, which works in me powerfully. In other words, for Paul, like, I'm not doing anything on my own anymore. Like, me and Jesus, we are partners in this. We are fully invested and working together in it. It, it's, it really strikes me, um, you know, Paul didn't sustain himself through decades of, like, getting stoned and whipped and shipwrecked because he once encountered Jesus on a road. Like, memory fades, right? Like, you can experience something really amazing, but, like, it might not mean the same thing to you today it did decades ago. Paul is sustained not because he met Jesus once. He's sustained because he, he keeps meeting Jesus again and again and again. He keeps going because Jesus has become a constant presence in his life. And this is what he means when he says, like, what I'm talking about here is Christ living in you. Jesus there all the time. So, so we've got a fresh start, we've got friendship, and the third thing, back to verse 27, is a future. God wanted to make the glorious riches of the secret plan known among the Gentiles, which is Christ living in you, the hope of glory. Like, people have always hoped that someday the world would get better. Well, Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire, and then God brought him back from the dead. And this is the thing that like, has just like, blown Paul's mind and changed everything. When Jesus comes back from the dead and Paul sees him, he knows like, evil can do the worst thing it wants to do, death can do the worst thing it wants to do, but if God is now overturning those things, there's nothing that isn't possible. 
The whole world is turning around. There are new possibilities that are going to be unfolding, like the world is getting a grand reboot. And that's what Paul believes he's glimpsed in the resurrection of Jesus. A new future, not just for him, for the entire world. Now, as far as Paul is concerned, all of this stuff, that fresh start, the friendship, the future, all of that has been just finished work in Jesus. Jesus has done this. It's a done deal. Um, Verse 20, um, we saw this last week when we were looking at this hymn from chapter 1. Christ brought peace through the blood of his cross. He, He brought peace. It's past tense, right? Like Jesus did this thing and it's finished. So that that all begs a kind of giant question that's right in the middle of this passage. I don't know if you picked up on this when the scripture was read this morning. Um, Verse 24. I'm happy to be suffering for you. I am completing what is missing from Christ's suffering with my own body. Well, if Jesus has accomplished all of this great stuff, what's missing you know, what could possibly be missing from the suffering of Jesus that Paul thinks has changed the entire world? Well, uh, I heard this week that in Phoenix, we are getting a new adventure park. So, so just, just for a moment, I, w- I want us to pretend, like, think of the kingdom of God. Think of this new future world that God is bringing as something like a new adventure park. Now, when, when we think about the way that God bringing this new world, this new adventure park works, I think a lot of us by default sort of think to ourselves, you know, God has a great idea. God has a great idea for a new adventure park. God's got a great idea for a new world. But the only way this thing is going to work is if God gets some workers to build that thing. Where are the workers, right? So, so somebody has to kind of sweat and bleed and work and struggle to get God's adventure park built. That's how the new world's coming. Now, if that's what's going on, if that's how the story works, this is not very good news for us. Um, I have to tell you, most of us, I, I am quite aware, cannot put together a piece of IKEA furniture without a big fight with our spouse and nailing half the stuff on upside down. Right? Like, if, if the only way this, like, kingdom of God park is getting built is if we sweat and bleed and do this thing, like, this thing isn't getting done. But the good news is that is not Paul's message. We are not the ones that build the park. God is building an adventure park. God is building a new world, a new kingdom. We are not the builders. That's not our work. So what is actually needed to complete the plan? Like if God is the one doing this, what is actually missing? Well, listen closely to what Paul says in in verses 25 to 27. I became a servant of the church by God's commission, which was given to me, for you, in order to complete God's word. I'm completing it with a secret plan that has been hidden for ages and generations, but which has now been revealed to his holy people. God wanted to make the glorious riches of this secret plan known among the Gentiles. What is missing from God's grand adventure park? What is missing from this big plan? Well, uh, Mattel might build the adventure park in Phoenix. God might build the new world. But you know what? An adventure park isn't worth anything if you don't tell people that it's open and make them think it would be a good idea to go there. 
Like Jesus has done the work that's necessary, Paul thinks, to bring this new world, to turn things inside out, but the benefits aren't complete until people actually get invited into this new thing God is doing. Paul is not the builder of the adventure park. Paul is the PR department. What is missing is getting the word out. So let's go back to verse 24. If this is what is missing, what needs to be completed is the invitation stage, the advertising phase. Um, So what does Paul mean when he says, I'm completing what's missing from Christ's suffering with my body? Like, why does Paul think working for the PR department involves suffering? Like, what's the connection? Well, I, I think Paul has two different things on his mind. Um, Number one, somebody always loses when the status quo changes. Somebody always loses when the status quo changes. I mean, if if a bunch of people are now going to spend money at Phoenix's new adventure park, it's not that they suddenly had more money than they had yesterday, it's that they're taking money they would have spent somewhere else, and now they're spending it here, right? Somebody gained and somebody lost. So so in this big kingdom of God adventure, like, who are the losers? Um, Well, there are a lot of them, frankly. There are a lot of losers from Jesus' work. Um, Number one, governments. Governments no longer get to claim ultimate authority and allegiance over their citizens because we belong to Christ and his kingdom. Um, Number two, religious institutions and religious leaders no longer get to claim special authority to hold on to access to God. Um, Number three, businesses, business owners, people who have made economic benefit from the addiction and slavery of other people who haven't been freed by Christ yet. They stand to lose a lot of money if Christ breaks chains and people go free. So the reality is if you're in a situation where a lot of people stand to lose from this conversion to a new kingdom, um, some of those people who stand to lose are going to feel threatened and lash out. So part of the suffering that Paul expects and he experiences is that as this good, good news of a new alternative kingdom goes out, as people become a part of it, some powers in the world are going to feel threatened and they're going to hit back. That's one reason they're suffering. But I think there's also a second reason. If you were going to be a part of this like invitation phase of getting the word out about what God is doing, um, the thing about getting invitations out is you actually have to go somewhere and do something. Um, you know, when Paul says in one of his letters that he has been shipwrecked three times, he hasn't been shipwrecked three times because somebody was mad about what he was doing and drilled a hole in the boat. Right? It's just that sometimes when you go out in God's service and you have to go some places and do some hard things, like bad stuff happens. You have to work hard and struggle. And particularly when the announcement that we're trying to get out there is this amazing word about a God of love who has hope for the future, um, what is going to make people believe that that message is credible? Like, it's one thing to say, like, there's a God who loves you, there's hope, but that message does not sound credible unless there are people willing to actually demonstrate that love and that hope in action. It's the demonstration that makes it credible. And all of you parents out there are fully aware that love is many things, but love is never free. It's never without cost to somebody. 
Like, your love for your kids might be many things, but, you know, part of what it costs you at some point is a whole lot of sleep, right? Like, when they're scared, you are bleary-eyed, but you are awake and sitting with them next to their bed. Like, it might be that you're feeding them even at the expense of eating yourself. I mean, it might be that somewhere in raising kids, like, they might have said some terrible things to you, and you had to offer a costly forgiveness, It might be that showing love to your kids involved leaving behind some of your own ambitions, some of the things you wanted to achieve in order to be present for them. Like, love everywhere that real love is shown. Love always has a cost. And Jesus is super frank with his followers about this. Like, when Jesus is telling people he is about this kingdom of love and he's looking for followers, he he never hides from people that this is a key part of it. He says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to get lots of amazing benefits. Like, you will never be alone again. You will have access to all of the resources of God. God will hear your voice. God will be present with you. But Jesus also says this in Mark. He says to his disciples, all, not some, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to come after me must take up their cross and follow me. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that by definition, someone who is a follower of Jesus is a person who is willing to follow the pattern of his cross, the the pattern of his self-giving love for other people. The, The definition of being a follower of Jesus is being someone who is willing to give something from themselves so that other people can live. That is at core the heart of Jesus. And I think we tend to shy away from this part of the Christian message because it's really easy for us to walk around and say, like, Jesus is all about love. Without saying, Jesus is all about love, and love costs something. Jesus is promising this amazing, better future for the world, but that better future involves future people who are willing to follow the same pattern of self-giving love of the cross that Jesus followed. That's the pattern, that's the shape, that's the definition of this better new world. Our cross-shaped love is often the crucial piece of the invitation that gets other people in to Jesus' cross-shaped love. So what does this kind of costly love look like in action? Like, what does this practically mean? Well, I think we, we could give an almost like infinite number of examples here, but let me throw out a few. Um, costly love means loving somebody before they change because love is often the only thing that produces change in the end, right? If love's the thing that produces the change, you have to often love somebody first when they're not all that lovable to you. I mean, costly love might mean making a sacrifice somewhere in your life, a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of money, a a relational sacrifice, maybe a sacrifice of your ambitions for yourself so that somebody else's needs get met. Costly love might mean resisting temptation. There might be something you want really bad that just isn't good for other people. It might be saying no to yourself for the sake of others. Costly love might mean taking the risk of loving your enemy. Loving an enemy is always risky because you can't control what they're going to do in response. 
I mean, costly love might be giving up your right to revenge when, when somebody hurts you and, and you just want what's due to you. You, you want to lash back. It might mean giving that up. Uh, costly love might be committing to be there for other people even when it's inconvenient to you. It might mean making room in your relational circle for somebody that you would just rather not have there, but they need somehow the circle of connections you can offer. I mean, there, there's all sorts of examples I could give here. But this past week, I, I was reading a book by um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, and he made this statement in the book that just really jumped out at me. He said, well, we say all the time that the church is the body of Christ, but we forget that the body of Christ has nail scars. We say the church is the body of Christ, but we forget the body of Christ has nail scars. Now, I read that statement and I thought, man, what a profound invitation for us as individuals and as a community together to take a step back and just reflect honestly on our own lives. I mean, where do our lives have cross marks? as individuals, as communities? I mean, where do our lives show the cross marks of people who have been willing to struggle and suffer and sacrifice so that other people hear God's invitation and believe it's credible? I mean, if we can't point to any nail scars at all, like according to Jesus, chances are we're fans of him, but we haven't yet begun the journey of actually following him because cross marks are what you get when you're really following. And it, it's, it's almost like alarming to me because I, I, the more I sit with this, the more I realize how easy it is for us to go through years and decades as people who claim to be followers of Jesus and we're kind of praying the prayers and we're doing the church thing and we're, we're skimming the surface of the Christian life. Um, but you can get to the end of years and years of, of saying you're following Jesus and look down at yourself and realize like, you have unblemished skin, right? Like, you had no actual skin in the game. I mean, Paul talks really frankly about this. Paul says to one of his churches, you know, the church is full of people who are drinking spiritual milk like babies, and the church needs people who are grown up and ready to eat meat. And this is the kind of thing he's talking about, right? It's, it's making the move, he suggests in Colossians, to actual maturity in Christ, what does maturity look like? It looks like wearing cross marks. It looks like being willing to enter that, that work and that struggle so other people can hear God's invitation and live. Now, it's not on us to fix the world. It's not on us to build the kingdom. But the question Paul just presents to us is essentially, like, what is your share in the affliction of Christ? Like, what, what is your small piece of that? Like, your small piece in that struggle, in that cross-shaped love that is given so the rest of the world can live. I want to close just reading a few words from Paul um, in the letter of 2 Timothy. Um, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a young man that he was mentoring, and Paul wrote these words shortly before his death. Um, listen to what Paul says. Remember Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead and descended from David. This is my good news. 
This is the reason that I'm suffering to the point that I'm in prison like a common criminal. But God's word can't be imprisoned. This is why I endure everything for the sake of those who were chosen by God so that they too may experience salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is why I do it. This saying is reliable. If we have died together, we will also live together. If we endure, we will also rule together. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are disloyal, he stays faithful because he can't be anything else other than what he is. Amen.